you know, and I, I, I had a kind of a nice feel-good message prepared. Um, and, you know, but I really felt the Lord wanted me to switch something up and preach a message that's really, let's just say it's not a feel-good message. <laughs> and even during worship, I'm like, Lord, let worship just keep going and let us just get lost in your presence and maybe I don't have to preach this. And it's a heavy, pre it's a heavy message, and I've preached it before. And it's kind of like something you don't really want to go to or do, but you but you feel obligated, and it's good to do it. It's almost like sometimes, like how many people love going to the car mechanic, and like you know you, you notice you have a you have an alignment issue with your car, you know you you, you know so. Generally, if, you're, if your alignment is fine, you can take your hands off the steering wheel and your car will go straight. But if you have an alignment issue, the car just veers a little bit to the right, a little bit to the left. And if you're not careful, you can actually cause some damage. Your tires will wear bad and you could have a blowout and you can have some serious problems. Um, but alignments are super important. And um, in church, I believe sometimes there's alignment moments alignment topics that we should talk about regularly. And I think the topic that I'm going to talk about, sh we should talk about it like once a year. It's kind of like going to the dentist, you know? How many people love going to the dentist? I mean, I don't think we have any dentists in our, uh, okay, there's a couple. <laughs> but most of us, I mean, I don't like going to the dentist, but, you know, I, I, I know I need to because it'll keep my teeth healthy and clean. And sometimes these messages help us align into biblical thinking. And so today is one of those messages. So I'm going to pre I'm going to pray and then I'll get into it. So Lord, I just thank you Lord that I am being obedient and pre preaching a message that a lot of us have heard but some of us have not heard me preach this. And Lord, I ask that you would use it to focus Lord and in in Lord even just to sober us up. Lord, you said um, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of laughter. And sometimes, Lord, we want, like Kyle was talking about, just being comfortable in, in those things. But often, Lord, you want us to have truth, and you want us to be have sober-mindedness in this Christian walk that you've commissioned us to do. And I just ask, Lord, you'd open the, our, our hearts and ears this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first week, we were in London. The second week, we were in Isle of Man. And the third week, uh, I went away with my daughter, Bethany. And um, it's a tradition that I've done with my two older ones. Whenever they graduate from high school, we would go on a trip, like a daddy-son or a daddy-daughter type of trip. And um, so I, she got to pick where she wanted to go. So since we were in Europe, she's like always wanted to go to France. So we went to uh, three days in Paris, which was super fun. And then we went four days in Nice, which is in the south. It's in the French Riviera. Um, and surprisingly, we found that uh, we were about 20-minute train ride from Monaco. And I've always heard about Monaco, and it was like one of those places I never, ever thought I would go. So we visited this place called Monaco. I think I have some pictures up there. Yeah, that's, that's us. It's like it was just beautiful. It's, it's, it's an interesting country. It's actually its own city kind of country. It's a super wealthy, almost like elite country. There's 36,000 people who live in that, so it's a small country, um, but they have more billionaires per, uh, per, per capita than any other country in the world. They, it's like a tax haven, and it's famous for the Monte Carlo Casino. You never seen the James Bond one? Uh, Casino Royale, that's where they film that. And the, also the Formula One Grand Prix. And they also have a monarchy. And the, the, the monarchy is the famous one was Prince Rainier III, and he married Grace Kelly. 
That was, I think, in 1953. And so, uh, you know, it's interesting being in that little country. There's, you know, the Princess Diaries and all those kind of movies where, you know, this American girl goes and then all of a sudden she becomes Prince of this Moldovia or these made up names. But but this was a real life thing. So um, and Prince Rainier III, he was like their Queen Elizabeth. Everybody loved him. He was a well-beloved king. I think he had ruled for almost 56 years. He married Grace Kelly, kind of put Monaco on the map. And, um, and then he had this opulent palace, which was amazing. And we took a tour there. I think I have a couple pictures of there. One of the rooms was the throne room. That's where I actually married Grace Kelly. And it was just really, really neat, something you don't see at all. And actually, then at the end of the tour, they had this bust of his head, and it was a pure gold bust. There it is. It looks a little creepy, actually. But, um, like, his hair was kind of supposed to be, like, uh, seaweed or something, and it was to honor, like, all his ecological conservation ideas and, and stuff. And then all around the city, like, this year, he would have been 100 years old, so they had these big... Um, uh, placards, and it had from 1923 to 19, um, third, uh, uh, 2023. So he would have been 100 years old. And so this, this prince, uh, he was the king, he was highly esteemed and almost worshipped. And then I had this nagging question. I thought, you know, where is Prince Renard III now? You know, all these people are looking at his castle, looking at all the stuff that he did. And he's almost worshipped as people revere him. And yet, the question that kept nagging me is, where is Prince Rainier III now? And according to the Bible, there's only two places he could be. He's still alive, even though he died. You know, we, we, we don't die. We just pass to another existence according to the Bible, and it's either in heaven or in hell. So the question I kept wondering, like, after all he did, all his acclimates, such an amazing life from, a, from an earthly perspective, is he in heaven or is he in hell? And how ironic would it be if he actually was in hell after all he did and everything he experienced now? And, you know, I don't really know where he is. Just my feel and doing a little bit of reading, it didn't seem like he ever had an encounter with Jesus. He was religious mixed with a bunch of other stuff. So if I had to guess, I would probably say he's not in heaven, which means he's probably in hell. And ever since I got saved, hell has been kind of this reality for me. Because actually, I remember I grew up in church, it's, it's kind of a long story, but I'll give you a quick, quick version. I grew up in church. I was a good kid. I never, even to this day, I've never done drugs. Um, you know, I've never stolen anything. I was always looked at as a good kid. And I, I was very moral. And actually, I became the youth pastor at church because everybody admired me. And they say, be like Peter. But I really never was, I never had a born-again experience until one time the Lord showed. I knew I sinned, especially in the area of lust with girls and dating and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I always just thought, well, that's just normal. And I always repented for my sins until the Lord showed me a vision of myself. 
And the Lord, the Lord showed me this vision, and in this vision, it was this tunnel inside me, and it was black. It was black as tar. And I asked the Lord, I says, what is this? And he says, this is your nature. You still have a sinful nature. And then I came out of it, and, and, and from that moment, I knew if I would have died, I would have went to hell. Not because of anything I did or didn't do. Pretty much, I mean, I like I had a good resume. Uh, I was definitely above the fifty percent mark. You know, good good deeds versus bad deeds. And I was actually a youth pastor, if you could believe that. Um, but the Lord ended up saving me. He changed that nature into a, a godly nature. He birthed His His Holy Spirit inside me. And but there was three days between when I saw that vision and then I got saved. And during that time, I felt if I would have died. I would have went to hell. So hell, even for me, my motivation to become a Christian was always there. And then several years later, I was I was leading a home group, and um, I wanted to do a study on hell. And so I started reading some books. I started looking at what Scripture says. And then I met this guy. His name was Bill Weiss. And he went to my brother's church at the time, and apparently he had a recent experience of going to hell, and he eventually wrote a book about it, and it's like a New York Times bestseller, and to this day he goes around the country sharing his experience. So I have some excerpts from his story that I wanted to read to you, and I just want you to just take it in and just think, think to yourself, is this really, could this really be true? Could hell exist? And could it be as bad as his experience was here? So let's go ahead and read it. Um, On the night of November 23, 1998, Bill Weiss, a real estate broker, went to bed with his wife and then suddenly found himself totally naked in a small prison cell in hell. And this is, he's quoting, this is him talking. As I lay there on the floor of that cell, I felt extremely weak. I noticed that I had a body, one that appeared just as it is now. Lifting my head, I began to look around. Immediately, I realized that I was not alone in this cell. I saw two enormous beasts, unlike anything I'd ever seen before. They were approximately 10 to 13 feet tall. They were entirely evil, and they were gazing at me with pure, unrestrained hatred, which completely paralyzed me with fear. I wanted desperately to get up and run, but as I lay on that wretched cell floor, I noticed that I had absolutely no strength in my body. Both beasts attacked me, threw him against the wall, and plunged their claws into his chest and ripped them open. I pleaded for mercy, but they had none. I was extremely nauseous from the terrible, foul stench coming from those creatures. Somehow he managed to crawl out of that cell. And then he, he continues. He says, despite his lack of strength, he managed with all his might to stand. I was horrified as I heard the screams of untold multitude of people crying out in torment. It was absolutely deafening. I looked off to my right and could see faintly flames from afar off that dimly lit the skyline. I knew the flames were coming from a large pit, a gigantic raging inferno. The rock was all the ground was all rock barren and desolate. One of the most painful thoughts I had was the realization that I could never get to my wife. She had no idea of my existence in this place. I would never ever see her again. The air was filled with smoke and a filthy, deathly, decaying odor hung in the oxygen depleted atmosphere. One of the worst sensations I experienced was an insatiable thirst and dryness. I was so extremely thirsty. I could see the outlines of people through the flames. 
The screams from the condemned souls were deafening and relentless. There was no safe place, no safe moment, no temporary relief of any kind. Through the panic and deafening noise, I struggled to gather my thoughts. I'm in hell. This is a real place, and I'm actually here. And then he goes to the end of the story. He says, all of a sudden, a brilliant light appeared, and before me stood Jesus. Jesus reached down and touched my shoulder. My strength instantly returned, and I rose to my feet. My next thought was, why did you send me to this awful place? Before I could ask the question, he answered, because many people do not believe that hell truly exists. He told me, some, even some of my own people do not believe that hell is real. I asked him, why, don't, why didn't I know you when I was there? He said, I kept it from you in order for you to experience the hopelessness of those souls in hell. Jesus said to me, go and tell them about this place. It is not my desire that any should go there. I mean, it feels like one of the worst horror movies you've ever seen. But according to Bill Weiss, this really happened, and this was an actual thing he saw. Um, but like everything, we have to measure this against Scripture. And what does Scripture say? Does Scripture say that hell is real? Or, you know, hell is really a, a kind of a foreign concept to us. I mean, we're in a society where people get offended by anything, and you really have to hold your opinions, even Christian values, so tightly to your chest. Otherwise, you can, you can uh, face persecution. But hell is like way out there, really in your face. But Jesus did teach on hell. And in one particular ta passage, a lot of the stuff that he taught about was reflected in Bill's story. And that is the story called The Rich Man and Lazarus. So let's look at this briefly here. It's found in Luke 16, starting in verse 19. And Jesus tells the story. This is Jesus telling the story to his disciples. He says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time, the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side, which is paradise or heaven, and the rich man also died and was buried. So Jesus is giving us a glimpse into the afterlife with the story of two people. There's the first guy, he's called the rich man, and he's clothed in, in purple and fine linen. He lived in luxury, and purple back in those days was a sign of royalty. So this guy probably had a lot of money. He, was a, he had great wealth and probably a lot of influence. I'm sure he had properties, things even named after him or his family. He might have come from money. Everyone knew who he was. In a way, he could have been the Prince Rainier of his day. And then there was another man called Lazarus, who's actually, they named him Lazarus, and it's a total contrast. He was a poor beggar, sick, hungry, miserable. Probably nothing was ever named after him. And if you probably interview the people of that town, probably nobody knew him as Lazarus. They probably knew him as the beggar who got his sores licked by dogs. But they all knew the name of the rich man. But it's interesting in this story that first, Lazarus was named and known in heaven, but the rich man, he was not named and not known. His earthly name we never knew. He was forgotten while Lazarus was remembered. 
Interesting. It seems to indicate that in heaven, your legacy and identity is remembered, but in hell, you have no legacy and your, your identity is not remembered. And the second thing is, this is not just a parable. There's been a little bit of debate among scholars, but most of the scholars agree that this is not a parable. It's not like, you know, the, 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 the guy who throws the seeds or even the, um, the, par the parable of, um, what's that, the, the, the son who comes back. Uh, yeah, the, the prodigal son, because there was no names. It was a man, it was a woman, it was seeds, it was a farmer. But this one had a name. So it's not just a parable. And um, Jesus was, in a sense, was removing the veil from the afterlife and showing you what is happening. So let's continue. It says in verse 23, in Hades, which is hell in Greek, where he was in torment, he, the rich man, looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Sounds a lot what, like what Bill Weiss had experienced. And the rich man, it says several things. It says he was in torment. And I looked up the definition of torment, even though we all know it. Torment says extreme pain or anguish of body or mind. And, and Jesus often described hell as a place with weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that actually appears seven times in the New Testament when he said that. And then the, the rich man cried out for pity or mercy. Why? Because there's no pity in hell. Actually, it was interesting when he, he came and spoke at our home group back in the day. And one of the things he mentioned in that was um, when he met with Jesus afterwards, he, he asked Jesus a couple questions and he was like, why did the demons hate me so much? Because they were ferocious and attacking him. And, um, you know, he said, well, because you're made in my image. And when they say men or women, they see someone made in God's image. So it's a reflection of God and they hate God. It was interesting, um, but there was no mercy in, in hell. And then he said the rich man was thirsty and he actually wanted just a dip of uh, uh, one drop of water to cool his tongue. Why did he want that? Because there's no water in hell. And then it says the rich man was in agony in a fire. Mark says, talks about hell, and he says the, it's a place where the fire is not quenched. And then actually in Revelation 2010, um, at the end of time, this is, what, uh, this is a description of hell, and it says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And one of the things the enemy wants to do to get back at God, he wants to take as many people with him to that place of hell as he can. And then Jesus continues his glimpse into hell in verse 25. He says, but Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Basically, he's saying once you die, 
your destiny is sealed. There is a great chasm that separates, and there's nothing anybody can do. And th this seems to indicate that there's only two places you go after you die, and the decision is final, where Lazarus went or where the rich man went. And, you know, why is this fact, once you die, your eternity is sealed, important? Well, you know how, like, I talked about the alignment? When you don't have a correct theology, even on hell, sometimes you can veer off, even unknowingly, into dangerous territory. Because there is a lot of, I think, bad doctrine out there where people, in, in, in regards to people believing in hell. Like, most people, like, if you talk on the street, most people kind of say they have this idea, like, well, all roads lead to God. Well, not according to Jesus in this story. One led to God, one led completely away from God in hell. And actually, there is, even in the Catholic faith, there is a belief where you go to purgatory. You know, when you die, you're, you're sort of good, but you can go to purgatory, do penance, and then if you do good enough, you get to go to heaven. But not according to this story. There's either a heaven and a hell. And it says there's a great chasm. So personally, I don't think uh, purgatory is a biblical concept. And then even there's some religions, even the Mormons, they believe in baptizing for the dead. There's one kind of obscure scripture that they've sort of taken out of context and they baptize themselves for the dead, thinking they can save someone who died and didn't know Jesus. That's why they're so good at genealogy because they want to go back and try to baptize all their relatives. You know, it's kind of interesting, but Jesus taught differently. So just when we're off a little bit with a simple concept like hell, sometimes we can make far, you know, bad strides about heaven and hell. And according to Jesus, the truth is once you die, your eternal fate is sealed. At the moment of your death, it's sealed. There are no second chances. That's why a proper understanding of hell and the reality of its horror should motivate us to overcome our fears and preach the gospel to those around us. So let's finish up the story. In verse 27, uh, he answered, uh, the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, Well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead it's interesting that the rich man once he was uh, through this dialogue he didn't he didn't say you know i don't really deserve to be here i gave money to the poor i did all this stuff he actually accepted the fact that he was in hell but the only thing he wanted to do was to save his family his five brothers what does that what does that tell us well he remembered his former life which is a torment in and of itself. If you're sitting in a place of torment, absolute torture, and you remember the good old days, that is horrible. And he remembered the love he had for his family. You know, he remembered his interaction with his brothers, his parents, and he wanted someone to go save them and tell them not to come to the place where he was. That is actually mental suffering with memories. 
you know, eternal regret, eternal shame, eternal helplessness. And then there's one of the most powerful verses ever in the Bible. It's verse 28. And this is what he's saying. Let, he, let Lazarus go and warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. And this is actually the cry of hell saying, send someone to warn them not to come to this place of torment called hell. And if you could interview someone, we can turn back the veil and, and interact with someone in hell. That's probably what they would say. They would say, don't come to this place. What would, if, if Prince Rainier third from Monaco, if we were to interview him and he is indeed, if, if he was indeed in hell, what would he say to the thousands of visitors that went to his palace? Would he talk about his acclimates, what he did when he was alive or how it was being married to Grace Kelly? He'd say, don't come here. What would he say to his subjects? He would say, forget all the wealth and all that stuff. Get to know Jesus be born again. What would he say to his family? I think his three kids are still alive. He has grandkids. He would tell them about Jesus. He would tell them to avoid hell. And the, the, the reality of hell is a proper alignment that we constantly need because let's just face it. We don't really think about hell. We don't really think about death, honestly. We try to avoid that. But, but, but this is one statistic that every single person here will have to face. We all will die. Every single person we know, all our loved ones, all our friends, all our neighbors, one day they're going to die, and they're going to have to stand before the Lord and give an account. And... They have to account for themselves, and if they don't, if they're not born again, they will not enter the kingdom of God. And if they don't enter the kingdom of God, they will end up in hell. So what do we do with this? Well, part of it is we have another reason to worship and glorify God. Because sometimes we look at salvation, you know, sometimes when you, when you have this view of hell, it gives you proper perspective. For, for me, a lot of ways, like Jesus coming and dying on the cross to giving us salvation was a rescue mission. Like when I had that revelation that I had a sinful nature, there was nothing I could do to change it. And there was only by having an encounter with Jesus accepting what he did on the cross, repenting for my sins, that he actually changed my very nature inside. He put his nature inside. So now when I die, I'm drawn up to heaven to spend eternity with him. And, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually a gospel of balance. And I think the easiest part of God to talk about is his love because his love is amazing and he loves us for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son we love to talk about God and how much he loves us but yet when we have a reality of hell we understand that there's another part of God that actually we're, we're to fear him it's this balance of God of love and a God of fear and you know, it's interesting, even Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, he talked, he said, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. And how many people, we have alarm systems, we might carry guns because we don't want someone to threaten us. He says, don't fear those people, for they cannot touch your soul. He says, fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
this is Jesus talking about God, and God is love. So there's this tension, this balance between the God of love and the God of wrath. And what do we as Christians do with this reality of hell? Well, for me, it gives me a renewed sense to share my faith with urgency. Especially, and I felt this morning, I think this message is going to hit home for especially some of you with your friends and your family. You know, sometimes when you deal with family members who are not saved, year after year, you kind of like get weary for praying for them. You get weary sharing the gospel. And, and sometimes it's like maybe they make you mad. Maybe they torment you. And you're almost like, well, maybe it'll be nice to not have you in heaven. You know what I mean? <laughs> it'll be easier for me. But we need to have a renewed sense of urgency to share the full gospel to our friends and our family. And it's so interesting. We do it with so many other things. I remember once I was on a trail in my neighborhood, you know, we lived by a canyon and, and I was walking by and I saw this big rattlesnake and he was laid out in the sun, just sitting there. And it was kind of close to the trail. And I, I guess he didn't see me or something. And I sort of walked by and, you know, he, I, I got past him without the rattling. And then, as, and then I, I went up maybe 10, 20 feet and this person's coming on the opposite way. And I'm like, Hey, Hey, up ahead, there's a rattlesnake. Be careful. And then someone else came. So I started, I told like five to 10 people about the rattlesnake. You know what I mean? And that was good. <laughs> but how often do I tell people about something much worse than getting bit by a rattlesnake about going to hell without Jesus? So sometimes when I realize that hell is up ahead for a lot of people, I will share my faith with a little more urgency. And also sometimes it's good to preach the full gospel. Hey, God has a plan for your life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who believe in him shall not perish. Sometimes you need to focus on what does that mean? Shall not perish. Because a lot of times we just want to, we would just want to skip to like, but shall have eternal life forever. But there is a reality of perishing. There's perishing in eternal life. And you need both to really give people a full reality of, of what life is all about. Because I think most people are deceived when it comes to hell. We just don't think of it. You know, nothing in movies, nothing in books, nothing in the media ever talk about that reality. In fact, it, most of it just lulls us into complacency. And we don't realize that. Um, but one day it says that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And it's better that they do it here, not, not in this place. And then, and then the, the, the third thing I want to encourage you is to be intentional. To be intentional to share the gospel everywhere you're at. For some, it looks like sharing the gospel to a waiter or the attendant at a, a Ralph's or Albertson's that you see frequently. For others, it's a neighbor, you know, and maybe you just want to befriend that neighbor, invite him over for dinner until, you know, there, there's a term I heard at our old church that says, love them till they ask why. 
And actually, Mike mentioned that there was a gal named Rachel. She was from Ireland, and she came to London. And one of the, 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 the ladies from the King and Country Church that we ministered at befriended her. She had three kids, and uh, she grew up Catholic but was disappointed in the church. And she just started hanging out with this, this uh, lady and just becoming friends. And then the lady's like, eventually, like, why are you so nice to me? And she shared the love of Jesus, invited her to church. And over a three-month period, she was coming. They were loving her. And she's like, she was realizing that there's something to this. And we got to see the fruit of that. That day when we were there, she accepted the Lord. It was just so beautiful. But I bet, and her name is Rachel from Ireland. I bet you there's a lot of Rachels from Ireland in your life. If you just take the time to notice them, to be friends with them, to hear their story, until they ask you, why are you doing this? Just share the love of Jesus. And can you imagine, you know, why the Bible says when one person comes to know the Lord, there's this huge party in heaven. And I wonder, you know, not only, you know, are they going to welcome them when they go to heaven, but they're probably thinking, that's so good. We got another one who, who won't be in hell. I remember in my business once, um, in my furniture business, uh, we used to um, witness a lot to people who used to buy our furniture. And there was this one guy came in, and, and as a salesperson, you're supposed to qualify people to say, like, you know, do you need furniture now? Is your house empty or you're building a home? And, and you don't need it till six months, so I, can, I wouldn't put as much pressure. So this one guy comes in and goes, yeah, my wife left me, and I have, I'm sitting on the floor in my apartment. So I started talking, and then I had kind of a prophetic word and I talked about Jesus. He bought furniture. So we kept a relationship for like two, three months. And he would come around and we would witness to him and we would share the gospel and really trying to disciple him. And then I remember one time he was there, my partner and I was there and it was like the heavens were opened and it was decision time for him. And we pressed him and we pressed him. We say, you got to accept the Lord. And there was this urgency and almost this sense that if he didn't accept now, that this he wouldn't have another opportunity. And he didn't. He walked away. And I remember it was so painful. I felt the heart of Jesus for him. And so we, we don't save anybody. We present the gospel. Not everybody's going to receive it. And it's going to be hard and it's going to be painful. Um, but we have to go and pursue people, and that's why Jesus gave us the Great Commission as one of the last things he did. So I want to just call up uh, the worship team right now, maybe just Kylie and uh, Caitlin. And uh, I'm almost finished here. So I, I just want to take a moment to reflect on some questions for, for you out there. Who is God putting on your heart to, to contend for? You know, especially in your family, have you sort of given up on your family? You know, you, you have more faith for the the clerk at Albertsons than you do for your for your family. Who is God putting on your heart to contend for? And what do you need to do? You know, a lot of times all we have to do is ask the Lord for wisdom and he'll give us wisdom. He'll give us strategy. He wants to save people more than we want to save people. And maybe it's maybe it's just inviting someone to your community group or even just to church. Inviting someone to church is an easy, easy way to do that. And, and look for opportunities when you're with people in, in the circle. Like there's those moments in people's lives that they're more open to the gospel than not. Like sometimes they have problems. Sometimes they have sicknesses. I remember in another story in my furniture store. 
lady came in because she had cancer and she wanted to buy a comfortable sofa. So I just prayed for her and she felt this peace and came back. We invited her to our community group. She ended up giving her life to the Lord, but she died two months later from cancer. But at least she's in heaven. And it was just because I saw that opportunity you know what? She was sick. And I was like, should I pray for her? She might get offended. Maybe not. And I just went for it. And she didn't get offended. You know, Josh spoke about divine appointments a month or two ago. And there's so many divine appointments that are waiting for us. And this not only can be a good testimony and, you know, make you feel good about yourself, but it could actually change someone's eternal home. You know, it's beautiful when a baby is born and new life arrives. Like little Monet Lynn Williams. You know, it's such a beautiful moment yesterday for Jake and Malia and the family. But it took, it took work, it took planning, and it took labor. <laughs> they don't call it labor because it's easy, right? <laughs> um, can I get an amen from the ladies out there? All right. But it's beautiful when new life comes into the church new salvations, new heavenly births, but it, 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 it requires work. And actually, when we were in France during my quiet time, I felt the Lord speak to me, and it was actually very encouraging. So I, I wanted just to read some, an excerpt from my quiet time journal. So this is what I put in Nice during my quiet time. I felt the Lord say that the season is shifting again in heritage. The last time it shifted was when Patrick and I went to South Africa, and it felt like it went from winter to spring. And uh, I saw, like, things starting to bud, new life starting to bud. And then the Lord, you know, he told me the springtime is coming, and indeed it came, and it's been a great season. But I felt the Lord say that the upcoming season is summer and harvest. I didn't get this emotional in my quiet time. <laughs> but the fields are ripe, and that a harvest is coming. And it's something we've been praying for as a community. And wouldn't it be so cool to see new births here? Wouldn't it be cool if this was sort of like a maternity ward? Yeah, there's messy and there's some noise going on because there's pain, there's labor. And then the Lord reminded me, don't pray for the harvest. Sometimes we're like, Lord, bring in the harvest. Lord, bring in the harvest. The Lord didn't tell us to pray for the harvest. He said, pray for the labors of the harvest. He says, the harvest is ripe. And I feel the season we're in now as a church, as a country, as a community, is things are ripe. And don't get bogged down with all the news media and all the nonsense going on. The fields are ripe. And the Lord has done a work here, not just so we can travel the world and come back and do this and do that. It's for souls. It's to save people from going to hell. If you had a, a child or a mom or a dad or a brother or sister, and they were, and, and you saw them and you had a glimpse of them going to hell, wouldn't that just tear you up? Lord, give us a burden for the lost again. And then I says, I'll continue. It said, don't pray for the harvest, but pray and equip workers or laborers to work the fields. During this next season, we will see growth and a harvest. God is faithful, and this will be the best season yet. And I remember after I, I received that, the next day, uh, Sarah, Miss Prophetic, uh, sent me a text and basically said the same thing. 
And it was so cool. And I hadn't heard from her in like three weeks. So it was interesting how God's timing. So I really do feel that that's the season. So I have two invitations as we close this morning. First, I, I, I feel that we need to say yes. Some of you need to say yes again to being a laborer in the field. Labor is hard work. Sometimes we get tired. Sometimes we get discouraged. Sometimes people say no or they mock you and we get discouraged, but we need to keep our eyes on the prize. So I feel some of you, you need to re-up and say, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll be a laborer. And you know what? I don't know what that means. I don't know what that looks like for you. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit. He'll give you grace. He'll, he'll equip you to do that. But you just have to start with saying yes. And the second invitation, and I do believe there's some certain people here today, I felt the Lord tell me, that you are uncertain about your eternal destination. If you were the rich man or you were Lazarus and you died today, you don't know where you would go. There is a question mark. And I don't want you to leave this morning with a question mark of where you will spend eternity. And it's simple. We repent. We ask the Lord to forgive us of our sins. We acknowledge our sins, that we are sinners. We turn away from that former lifestyle. We say yes to Jesus. The Bible calls that being born again. And then you simply follow Jesus. The disciples, when the initial encounter with the Lord, all he said is, follow me. And they were dumb. They made mistakes. They didn't get it. They didn't have all this understanding, but they followed him. And today, all you have to do is say yes to Jesus. And I really felt that for some of you, today is that day. Maybe you've heard that message before and you've put it off. But 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And you need to repent and turn your life over to Jesus today. And the devil tries to deceive us. He's the master deceiver. And he tells us to receive salvation in the future. You still have some things to do. You have time. You don't need to do it today. But the Bible says today is the day of salvation. And the thing is, is every time you resist Jesus when he's knocking at your, the door of your heart, it becomes more difficult to receive salvation. There's a hardness that comes in your heart. And also, we don't know when we will die. There's no guarantees. I hope to live 70s, 80s, 90s. But I don't know. I might die young. Um, and there was a guy who spoke at the conference. He was this Irish guy named Hammy, and he wrote this book, Is There Mercy for Me? And um, in the book, he, he talked about several people who accepted, he, he, friends that he led to the Lord, um, died within a week or two after receiving the Lord. They just squeezed in. So don't wait. You don't know if, you, if you'll have another opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. And then the, sometimes there is a point of no return. In Romans 1.28, it seems to indicate that if you keep saying no to Jesus, you keep saying no to Jesus, eventually he'll give you over to depraved mind, it, the Bible says. And you might not be able to repent again. So I just really felt to, to hit home this urgency of receiving Jesus today, that today is your day of salvation. So can we pray? 
Yeah, Lord, um, this is the most important decision that we can make in our life. This is the most important decision in our whole life, Lord, to, to give you our lives, to repent and follow you. Lord, eternity is at stake with this decision. And I just ask, Lord, if there's anybody here who needs to commit to you and say yes to you, that you would that you would give them the power, Holy Spirit, bring conviction and your mercy and your kindness, Lord, because you are a good God and you're a loving God. But yet there's also a consequence, Lord, if we don't follow you, we don't give you ourselves, Lord. There's an eternity without you that is terrible. So I'm going to ask you a question by a show of hands. If, if you want to, let's just, this is going to be a prayer for a moment. If you want to just keep your eyes closed. By a show of hands, please raise your hand. Uh, and well, I'm going to count to three in just a sec to say, yes, you know, I want to receive Jesus as my Savior today. And I want to make today the day of salvation. count to three. One, two, three. If that's you, just raise your hand right now. All right. See that hand. Is there anybody else? Is there anybody else? You say, you know, I don't want to leave here with my eternal security in doubt. Anybody else? Can we all stand? And then the other, the other call I, I want um, to give is if you want to come and you want to say yes to being the labor in the harvest field, you know Jesus, but you've been a little lax in your, you know, working in the, in the field, the kingdom of God. If you've let other things distract you, if you want, I, I want to invite you to come on up and just get to the altar here and just do business with the Lord and, and just say, you know what, Lord, I'm sorry for getting lax in my witness to you and I want to ask you to forgive me and I want to re-up and I want to say yes to you in your kingdom. So I'm just going to leave uh, so if, if you either accepted the Lord for the first time or you want to say yes to uh, entering God's field as a laborer I want you to come on up. Okay?